From the newsroom of Impact Alpha, I'm Brian Walsh, and this is your Impact Briefing for Friday, December 17th. This will be our final podcast for 2021. Today, I'm joined by our roundtable regulars to talk about diversity in institutional asset management and the reconstruction this time. Imogen Rose Smith is an Impact Alpha contributing editor. Hi, Imogen. Hi, Brian. And David Bank is Impact Alpha's editor and CEO. Hi, David. Hey to both of you, Brian and Imogen. But first, here's what you need to know from this week in Impact Investing. Genderland's investment funds continue to proliferate, but fundraising has been tough. Project Sage found 206 gender lens funds in its fourth roundup of funds that prioritize women as founders, workers, or customers. But the funds report commitments of only $6 billion against their collective target of $13 billion. Totals barely budged in the first half of this year. Also on the rise, investing in reducing food waste, which is a major contributor to climate change. Commercial and catalytic investors have poured $5 billion this year, up from $4 billion last year, into various technologies and tools that help reduce food waste. Hot areas of investment, cold chains, imperfect and surplus produce, edible coatings, and anaerobic digestion or organic waste. Executives at Toyota and Harley-Davidson are dreaming electric. Toyota is lagging rivals like Ford and GM and declined to sign a pledge last month to phase out fossil fuel engines by 2040. But Toyota said it would invest $35 billion in 200 EV models. Harley is spinning off its electric motorcycles as live wire and going public via a SPAC, another example of what Amy Cortese of Impact Alpha calls Renewco's. Carbon America raised $30 million to capture and sequester carbon. This Colorado-based company finances and developed projects to help the biggest emitters cut their carbon footprints. The U.S. Department of Labor is proposing rules to once again allow managers of pension funds and retirement accounts to consider ESG in their investment decisions. The new rules would reverse an effort by the Trump administration to discourage consideration of environmental, social, and governance factors by pension fund fiduciaries, which itself was a reversal of Obama-era guidance, which itself was reversal of Bush-era guidance. And finally, the Impact Task Force delivered proposals for mobilizing capital for a just transition. Among the recommendations, mandatory impact accounting, The 120-member strong group included agents of impact like UN Special Envoy Hiro Mizuno, Courageous Capital's Lori Spangler, and LeapFrog's Andrew Cooper. Impact Alpha subscribers got all of these stories and more in their email each day this week. Now it's time for our featured conversation. Welcome back, Imogen and David. Now, Imogen, you wrote a column this week in your Institutional Impact series talking about diversity and inclusion in institutional asset management or the lack thereof. Tell us about it. Sure. I think the the lack thereof is really the point. There has been an effort. It really started a couple of years ago, but certainly in a post-George Floyd universe, there's been a fairly public, very conscious effort on the part of institutional investors, but I'm really talking here about the sort of ultra elite of the elite institutional asset management, which is the sort of foundation endowment investors, particularly university endowments, 
OCIOs, which is outsourced CIOs, um, and to a certain extent, the broader alternative investment community, meaning hedge funds and private equity in particular, to be more, more inclusive and paint a sort of more in, inclusive picture of who they are as investors and who they are as an investment team. Um, and so what my column really dives into is, are they really walking the walk as well as talking the talk? And simply, I don't think they are. I think there's a lot of discussion about inclusion and a lot of, in some cases, well-meaning conversations. But when you actually look down and you look at who these organizations are hiring, who works there and who are in positions of leadership, you see that it tends to be a lot of, in particular, no surprise, white men with a certain kind of background, a certain kind of education, you know, some white women. Um, and that there really is not a lot of inclusion. Imogen, um, I love the game you proposed, which was look at the websites of some of the, say, university endowments who tend to p- publish these things, and then you can see the investment the investment team, and then you can also hold that up against the pledges and, and, and commitments they've made to, to diversity. And there's a little bit of a disconnect, I guess. Yeah, and so my point is, you know, when you run out of things to talk about with your family over the holiday break, you can go in and take a look at, you know, name any university endowment and just look at how diverse they really are. And if, you know, you see a lot of women represented now, take a, take a look at sort of previous iterations of their website and how recent those changes are. Um, and the, there are historical reasons for this. University endowments in particular, um, hedge funds do this as well, tend to hire based off background references. And so as a result, you tend to see, and and this is what they were told to do, because they were told this is how you breed excellence and that you want people who think and look and act like you because that's how you're going to have the best team. And you're all going to get along and it's going to be cohesive and you're going to have happy outcomes. Um, And so that is, and that's really sort of the model that David Swenson, who was a long time head of the Yale environment, that's what he promoted and he was very, very successful. And so these organizations have deliberately basically been elitist. Now, that doesn't mean that they're racist. It doesn't mean they're sexist. It doesn't mean any of these things. But they created a very insular, very self-referential culture. And what has happened is in the last, really in the last 18 months, society has said to them, like, this isn't good enough. And this isn't just coming from outside. Like, this is also coming from internally. Like, these organizations, a lot of people at these organizations want to do better. And they realize, you know, oh, my God, like, we we have not been inclusive enough. And so you're seeing a real change in terms of their rhetoric, but you're not seeing a real change in terms of their actions. And a lot of the actions that you are seeing a really sort of tokenism. So a good example of this is, if you remember, Princeton University a few years back, so John Rogers, is who's one of the leaders, African-American leaders in the asset management industry, is on the board of Princeton University. And he had been pushing them for years to be more diverse. And so two or three years ago, there was a couple of, not on Bloomberg, and at least somewhere else, and Princeton basically did this victory lap because that invested in an African-American-owned venture capital business. And there are all these articles about how great it was, and they tried so hard, and they finally found someone. 
And my favorite part of this whole thing was how they met the manager. They came across this manager in Martha's Vineyard, which is like the you know, where the sort of the elites of you know, African-American U.S. society go to summer. It's like the most elite exclusive place you could possibly go to find someone like. And yet that's that's what they did. Well, this this is sort of my question that I, that I was left with in the in the column image, and, and it comes up also in you know some of the diversity questions around sort of you know corporate boards or whatnot, which is it's all well and good to have, and and I'm certainly in favor of of, of better representation on both boards and and in in asset management, but but it's kind of like what will that do in terms of changing the system at large? Are we just putting different individuals in so that you know, a broader cross-section of folks can get the fees off of asset management, but make the same kind of investments. So, you know, is it really, you know, is it, it's all good for a few more diverse professionals to, to, to have these opportunities of everybody's in favor of that, but what will happen when that change occurs? What will be different sort of systemically? Exactly. It has to be, it has to be cultural change. It has to be tenants said that, that, it has to be cultural change. It has to be systemic change, and it has to come from a place of sincerity. Hiring, you know, a couple of board members of color and a woman board member is not enough if all that is ultimately doing is effectively propping up the white elites and the values that values that underline the operation in the first place. It's yeah, you know, it's an important step, and clearly, you know, diverse boards does make a difference. Studies show that, but. If all you are doing as, you know, a chief investment officer or a CEO of a corporation is making a couple of literal sort of token hires to make you look good, then you're actually achieving the opposite. And rather than achieving cultural change, you're enforcing the culture that you have and often building resentment and underlying the diversity, the, the, the diverse members of your organization, so undermining the diverse members of your organization. What's at stake became somewhat more clear to me um, on our Agents of Impact call earlier this week, and we were talking with Melissa Bradley of 1863 Ventures about this trend uh, kind of coming out of the pandemic of black entrepreneurship, which is kind of off the charts, both in comparison to pre-pandemic levels and also in comparison even now to uh, white and other groups' um, entrepreneurship. But the point is that um, these new, this new crop of entrepreneurs, in order to grow and succeed and and sort of last beyond the usual kind of lifespan of startups, um, really needs access to capital, which has really been limited. Here's Melissa. The challenge is, is that while they're living or existing longer than our traditional businesses and certainly their their white peers that existence and sustainability does not correlate to growth because of that lack of access to capital. So we are hypersensitive in the work that we do that this is a unique time to say that we intentionally use the word new majority because not only is the country flipping and many cities have already flipped, but the majority of entrepreneurship and small businesses are people of color. How do we begin to realign our capital to actually support the economic drivers of this country? You know, it was not lost, I'm sure, many on this call when 
Oakland City said that there is a $16 trillion in opportunity cost because of historical racism and marginalization. And I would say, you know, whether or not you care about race, gender, and, and, and racial equity, from a pure American competitive standpoint, that is a real challenge that we need to overcome if we want to continue to be, if it's even possible, the economic superpower of investing in those that are actually the business drivers in this country. Yeah, I think that's really true. I think that we we need to change who allocates capital. But again, it's not necessarily about, you know, who is the CIO at public pension plans or who is the CIO at endowments. It's who's on the front line, like who are the investment staff making these decisions and how are they empowered and enabled to make inclusive choices and rewarded for it. And Imogen, though, what is the pipeline of talent to those opportunities? Well, you see, that gets into a sort of a sticky issue. What you'll hear a lot is, oh, well, we would love to hire, you know, a person of color in this role. But you know what? We just can't find the talent. It's so hard. You know, and that is so clearly bullshit. So it's not necessarily that the pipeline of talent is the problem. It's how you look for talent and then how you support and build that talent. And that's where everyone, like, that, that's what people need to do. And they need to say, okay, let's look outside of where we would currently look for employees, find the skill set that we need, bring that person in, and then ensure that we set that person up to succeed. Rather than what you're seeing a lot of is, oh, let's go find, you know, a woman of color. Doesn't actually need to do anything at the organization. She can just sit there which is terrible, right? It's the opposite of what you should be doing. Can you give an example of uh, an institutional asset manager who is doing this well, who is, who is you know, actually walking the talk and, and taking the necessary steps, not just to tick the box, but to, uh, or engage in tokenism, but to actually, you know, change their culture and change their practices and change their, their way of how they think about uh, bringing talent into their investment process and how do they think about supporting uh, diverse talent and, and how do they think about building a, a, a truly inclusive culture that generates, you know, strong performance. So who does this well or who's at least further along in the journey in, in doing this well? Also a hard question to answer because the manager that was most respected for doing this uh, was a Vista firm run by Robert Smith, um, who is the other most well-known African-American leader in asset management, and they have a large amount of investment from public pension plans. The problem with Vista is that Robert Smith recently was fined a significant amount for not paying taxes. Oops. So... Yeah. Um, and they, they were really held out as the poster child that does this well and has sort of built it into their DNA and always has seen it as being important. There are a couple of OCIO firms that try and do a good job of this. There are some that sort of see themselves as specializing in it. Um, but, you know, I think every, look, everyone, I guess the point is, is like many people in the space are on a, on a, journey and it's a learning curve and no one there are very few organizations that you can yet point to within asset management and say yes they're doing a good job i think what you can see is the real difference between the people who are doing it sincerely and trying and the people who are basically you know doing it as woke virtual signaling 
to make the pairs that be feel better about themselves and pat themselves on the back. It was interesting to me, Imogen, in the in the in the column, and you cite the House Financial Services Committee report, which says, you know, we must do more. And there's a Knight Foundation asset management report, and it says we must do more. And the head of State Street Global Advisors was was testifying, and he said we must do more. And everybody's saying we must do more, but aren't though the, some of those folks, you know, in a position to, to see that we do more? Well, exactly. And look, we've been talking about this in the public pension fund sector for. 20 plus years, the, you know, you're actually doing a good job. Denise Napier, who was for decades the treasurer of Connecticut, dedicated her life to doing this at the Connecticut State Investment Plan. Like, this is not a new story. It's not a new conversation. And yet, all of a sudden, you know, the state streets of this world who serve public pension plans are acting like, oh, of course we should do more. Like, if they really wanted to do more, they would have done it by now. So what are the signs that people are serious and not just paying lip service to this? Forget about the examples, but what are, what, are the, what are the signals that you look for for those who are taking this seriously? I always look at what roles do people have within an organization. How many women and people of color do you have in your investment staff? Uh, all your you know, diversity people in roles that are either sales or marketing Sometimes, you know, if you have an organization that has issues, it's a tell. If you have, like, you know, like I'll give you a good example. The chief risk officer at Credit Suisse was a woman. When Credit Suisse, just, you know, what was that, a year ago, had huge risk issues, risk issues in their bank. What a surprise, right? Hmm. To be clear, I don't mean that the, the, the Credit Suisse had risk issues because they had a woman in charge, quite the opposite. They put a woman into a role that was basically an impossible situation and gives you an indication of what, and she was the chief marketing officer before she was the chief risk officer. It gives you an indication of what the bank thought about that role. Yeah, those are all good points, Imogen, but I think it's just <laughs> important to say, you know, you know, not to be too smug about it. And even in so-called impact investing funds, this uh, problem, you know, has not been licked. Here's Jillian Marcel uh, on the reconstruction call this week. And so the challenge for the impact alpha community because there are many white Caucasian males in that in this community who have access to the folks who hold power in impact investing and in the rest of the financial system is that there must be an acknowledgement of how much more work there is to be done. Because what we have seen in the 21 months or the 22 months of the pandemic and since the murder of um, George Floyd is anyone can write a press release. That's the easy part. Anyone can cry on, on podcasts. That's also the easy part. Living your values and actually moving money where the decisions about who moves the money is held by black professionals and experts who actually are proximate to the communities that they are going to invest in, as Melissa was speaking about, is really hard. And if you didn't think it was hard, the last 13 months have shown that not only is it hard, but people are not prepared to take the actions for that to happen. Because what we have seen is that the performance of centering blackness has happened, but the actual genuine actions of doing that have not happened. And they have not happened more so in the finance and investment world. 
And I, I think all of this is to underscore the fact that going into 22, it really needs to be about more than words. It needs to be action if that's on the asset management side or you know, on the institutional asset management side or the impact investing side. Everyone, no one can now say they are not aware of these issues. The challenge is to step up and really begin to achieve change. Well, I think that's certainly a good place for us to leave it, not just for this conversation, but for this year's Impact Alpha's podcast series. Thank you so much, Imogen Rose-Smith. Thank you. And happy holidays, everyone. And thank you so much, David Bank. And I was going to say the same thing. Uh, uh, Happy New Year and happy holidays to both of you and to all of our listeners. And that's going to do it for your Impact Briefing. More all day every day at impactalpha.com. Subscribe to get full access to the site and the daily brief. Right now, we have our best deal of the year. Take $200 off your first year subscription if you go to impactalpha.com slash subscribe. Thank you so much for listening. And thanks, as always, to our fearless producer, Isaac Silk. I'm Brian Walsh, head of sustainability for the capital markets firm, TPICAP. Until next year, until 2022, take good care.